Hi, my name is Katie. <laughs> Good morning. The Old Testament reading is found in Genesis 2, 18 through 20. Then the Lord said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock, to all birds of the heaven, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. The word of the Lord. The New Testament is found in 2 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. If I speak in tongues of human beings and of angels, but I don't have love, I'm a clanging gong or a clashing cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and I know all the mysteries and everything else, and if I have such complete faith that I can move mountains, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. If I give away everything that I have and hand over my own body to feel good about whatever, what I've done, but I don't have love, I receive no benefit whatsoever. The word of the Lord. If you're able, would you please stand for the reading of the gospel, which is found in Matthew 22, 23 through 32. That same day, Sadducees, who deny that there is a resurrection, came to Jesus and they asked, they said, teacher, Moses said, if a man who doesn't have children dies, his brother must marry his wife and produce children for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first one married, then died. Because he had no children, he left his widow to his brother. The same thing happened with the second brother and the third, and in fact, there were seven brothers. Finally, the woman died at the resurrection. Which of the seven brothers will be her husband? They were all married to her. Jesus responded, you are wrong because you don't know either the scriptures or God's power. At the resurrection, people won't marry, nor will they be given in marriage. Instead, they will be like angels from God. As for the resurrection of the dead, haven't you read what God told you? I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He isn't the God of the dead, but of the living. Gospel of the Lord. Please remain standing as we pray. Father, thank you for this space. And we ask in your eternal wisdom that we would see and find you today. That you would show us both your goodness and mercy as well as open us up to knowledge, understanding, insight, and wisdom. And that the truest love is sourced in you and brings us back to you. So bring us back to you now, we pray, through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Take your seats, everybody. Good morning, good morning. My name is Evan Riedel. I get to be an executive pastor here at New Life Downtown, mostly with marriage and family. We do some other stuff in there. And I get to bring the word today. How's that? Is, you good? Great. 
We are on our second week of a summer series going through the Proverbs. And the Proverbs is a book pretty much right in the middle. It's a collection of Hebrew sayings. There's some themes, there's some one-offs. And we're looking really for the answers to various questions that we're bringing to the Proverbs. So the, the main way we'll pitch them up every week is how do I, and then we'll ask specific questions. This week we're going to look at how do I find true love? Last week, Pastor Jason prefaced a little bit of what is wisdom in the first place and how do we see it in the scriptures. He described, number one, this is how Proverbs is set up in the very beginning. Wisdom is founded in the fear of the Lord. That to fear the Lord is the beginning of our, our journey through discovering wisdom and who God is and the way that he made the world. And, and I love this phrase that I've, I've heard elsewhere that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and there is no greater wisdom than to love the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning, but there is no greater wisdom than to love the Lord. So it is our response to him and that's where it starts. And then number two, his point, wisdom is learned by listening and having those listening postures. And then lastly, wisdom ends in integrity and not prosperity. A lot of the Proverbs set us up with this notion of if you do A, then B will happen. And sometimes we get this, this kind of convoluted way of saying, well, this is riches and prosperity and, and wealth and, and longevity of life. And, and that might be true. But really what the Proverbs are trying to get us to is a greater value than just riches, which is character and godliness and righteousness, and saying this is then the way in which we should live. So that wisdom ends in integrity, and that's that character. So I was asking myself a, a number of questions, because the assigned topic for the week is how do I find true love? And uh, I, I'd just be curious for you all, what comes to mind when you hear that question? How do I find true love? To get it out of the way, love, true love, okay. <laughs> If that's not the first thing that comes to your mind, you obviously were not a child of the 80s, or in my context, I was born in 86, so I'm 35, but like my wife is a total 80s guru, so we're, she, it, it all gets brought back to me. So there's number one. Anybody else, you guys come up with movie references? Do you come up with any, any songs? You know, like the first song that came to my mind is, what is love, baby, don't hurt me, right? Like that... It just as soon as you have open up the Pandora's box and topic of love, it should raise all of these references and, and a number of other points that, that happen as well of it probably pokes at our experience with love and relationships, whether they went really, really well and we're, we're basking in the goodness of what it can be or in this room, I, I'd be curious if you would be willing to hold the space with me. There's two or 300 of us in this space right now. And we all have our own individual stories with love. Some of us are saying, I found friendship or I found marriage and it's mutual and it's reciprocated and it's healthy and it's trustworthy and it is good. And some of our stories aren't quite that. Maybe it's longings unfulfilled. And so to even bring up the topic of true love hits a really deep pang inside of us. Or maybe we found love and it didn't go well and its brokenness has left us a little shattered and it's hard. It's hard to sit in this space and be, well, I'm, maybe I'm married, but it is not good. Or maybe I'm divorced and I'm still reeling from all of that. So when I come to this, this topic, I, I, I hear both sides of it, of going, I, I hear, you know, Wesley and Buttercup 
and I hear the pains in this room. That's, that's the reference I was making, by the way, with love, true love. I think you guys all got that. Okay, so how do we find true love? There was a couple of questions, really, that, that started, I, as I was trying to craft a sermon around this and looking at the Proverbs for it, uh, a couple of things that really, really started to go at me, going, okay, this is what I'm grasping for now. Number one is even defining what, what is love. Because in, in a real way, I love summer, and I love snacks, and I love my spouse. Three completely different things that I love in completely different ways, but I have one singular word for it. I love that thing. The scriptures have multiple words in the Greek for it, agape, phileo, eros. Are we talking romantic love, affectionate love? Are we talking God's unending love, grace? So what is love in the first place? Maybe that's where that what is love song came from because it could have just been that rolling around my head going, what is this? How do we define it? So what is love? If we got it, if we figured out what it is, number two, how do we get it? Like, so if I knew this is what love is, then we step into, now how do I go about getting love? And, and, and what's the formula? And, and what's the, 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 you know, the ways in which I can tell you the anecdotes uh, and the platitudes of, well, just, you know, if you do A and B, then you'll just, you'll find someone and it'll be great. Has anybody, come on, somebody in here has had somebody prescribe to them the best formulaic advice for how to find love and it probably didn't actually work out that way, right? Because if I told you that my, my success in finding a spouse, it would, uh, it would include, um, you know, a cafeteria in college and, and some speaking French to each other. And that would, I don't think that would fly for most of you, right? Because if I told you to go to a cafeteria, most of you are probably aged out of that, and so then it becomes weird already. Uh, and then you don't really know French, so what are you going to do with that? So, so formulas, we have them. Well, if you just did A, if you put yourself out there, if you go on this website, if you swipe left or swipe right, like how do you find this thing? What is it? And then how do we get it are two really problematic questions. The third one that I was wrestling with in crafting this is what do we do with it? If I figured out what it is and I got it, then what do we do with it? And really, a big, a big point that I was asking is, how do we get something that's so good as love and maintain its goodness without idolizing it as ultimate? If I was to find it, how do I hold it in such a way as it doesn't become an idol in my life of this is the pinnacle of what we're searching for, what we're striving for, what we're trying to go for? And so those are a couple of the questions that I want to address, and I want to look at the Proverbs. This is the way that Jason Jackson, Pastor Jason, last week teed up the Proverbs to us. In essence, the Proverbs are looking for the design that God has put in the world, that he has created with order. He's a God of order, not of disorder. And that in that order, he's created the universe and the world and the way that it all works and the way that we work with a certain grain to it. And that wisdom literature, the Jewish wisdom literature, seeks to understand that grain and then live into it, live into agreement with the grain that God has created the world with. And so living in that, we get certain Proverbs like Proverbs 5, 18 through 19. May your spring be blessed. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. She is a lovely deer, a graceful doe. So I come to the Proverbs and I go, okay, I'm looking for how to find love. How do I find love? True love. And I see this. It's good. You should get it. She's lovely. Rejoice. But I still don't know how to get it if I don't have it. 
All right, let's move on through the Proverbs. 18.22, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Still don't know how to get it. You're not answering the question. How do I find true love? Let's go a little bit further. Proverbs 30.18, three things are too wonderful for me. Four that I can't figure out. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a snake on the rock, the way of a ship out on the open sea, and the way of a man with a young woman. So if we're really coming to the Proverbs and asking, how do I find true love? The Proverbs are saying, yeah, I don't know. This is too wonderful for me. And I think the pinnacle of all of them, Proverbs 21.10, an excellent wife, who can find? (laughs) She is far more precious than jewels. Solomon himself can't answer this question, but I'm gonna tackle it, all right, guys? You ready? This is gonna be great. Let's stick in it together. I think what the Proverbs are doing here is affirming the way that God has created that design and that grain of the world without actually telling us how to get into it and find it and what to do with it ourselves. I think what the Proverbs are also doing is making us go back into the creative design. If the Proverbs aren't gonna answer, how do I find true love? then we should look a little bit earlier in the meta-narrative of the scriptures to say, okay, so where is relationships and where is the design work of humans in relationship with one another? Where is that actually established? And it was our Old Testament reading today, and we're looking in Genesis 2. If you have your Bibles, you can flip there. It'll basically be the diving board, which I will jump into everything from the day. So the Proverbs don't spell out the way to find love. That's not what they're doing as much as they express that it is God's wisdom to love. They're not necessarily telling us how to find it, but they're expressing that it is God's wisdom that we do love. And so how has this love been designed? Genesis 2, 18. Then Yahweh God said, it's not good that the human is alone. I will make a helper that is perfect for him. It is not good that the human is alone. Man, what a lot of the year we've had this last year, huh? It's not good that we're alone. I will make a helper that's perfect for him. I want to make a couple of observations from this design work that Genesis describes of how we're fashioned so that then we can start living into agreement with it. Number one is that God's wisdom designs us for both intimacy over isolation and collaboration over competition. That in this verse in Genesis, it was not good that he was alone, so I will make a helper fit, is hitting on two things of our designed order that God has given us in humanity, that we all share. That he's designed us for intimacy over isolation, and he's designed us for collaboration over competition. We're going to unpack those in a bit. Number two, God's wisdom designs us to be on kingdom mission. Proverbs 18.22, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. I think what they're saying in this context is, in the structure of it, when you get intimacy and you get isolation, what I'm doing is then putting you on mission. And some of that mission, it's a really fascinating thing that it's good. Like, it's good. That is, this is the way that God created the world. It's good. He created sun and moon. It's good. He created order. It's good. It's good. It's good. And then he gets to this point, and the first thing that he says is not good is our isolation. It is not good that you're alone, so I'm gonna make a helper fit for you. 
And then I'm going to put you on mission. And guess what? It's going to take a lot of this collaborative work. So I want to unpack these a little bit. First, living intimately. If we're really going to dive into this, you've created us for mission, for intimacy, for collaboration. The number one is living intimately requires vulnerability. Living intimately requires us to live vulnerable. And this is the hard part for a lot of us in this room. And I'm saying we all have these stories. We're all individuals if we're finding true love. That vulnerability is both the point of a potential for good and a potential for a lot of pain. A lot of hurt and a lot of healing can come from this one point of vulnerability which requires trust, okay? So here's how I want to unpack it a little bit. This is the way that C.S. Lewis phrases up the idea of our human structure to live intimately and vulnerably. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. That's for you cat lovers in the room, all right? (laughs) Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. And what we've experienced in our lives is that exact notion. And for some of us, the risk of vulnerability was put into trustworthy hands, and the response, whether it was in friendship, whether it was in marriage, those close intimate relationships that intimacy requires vulnerability, we put them in trustworthy hands, and the result was good things. It was strong friendship, it was intimate relationship. It was this idea that to be vulnerable, I, I love this idea of intimacy, if this is the goal, intimacy over, over isolation. Intimacy defined, intimacy being to be completely known and to be completely loved. To be completely, fully known, and the response, completely, fully loved. And in between those two things is this point, this jumping off point of vulnerability. That yeah, I know, and I tried, and I was vulnerable, and it didn't work. I know, and I tried, and I was vulnerable. And, and we're getting to this idea that God is calling us into it, but itself, in itself, relationship is required, but it requires risk in that. And this is what C.S. Lewis is picking up on. To live at all is to be vulnerable. A couple of years ago, I was asking a number of counselors in town for just insights that my assumption was that a lot of the counselors, even in this congregation, are seeing us as individuals and maybe hearing what's really going on that sometimes we're not told as pastors. And so I was going to these counselors and asking, hey, can you help me? Can you just help me figure out, like, what can we as the church be positioned to uniquely do that, that is helpful? What should we stop doing that we are doing or start doing that we're not doing? But we're in a position where we get to gather every week and preach every week and encourage and edify and teach. So what are we missing? And one counselor in particular, he talked about along this line, you guys... We talk too much about marriage as a source of pain, he said, 
and not about marriage as an opportunity, as a source of healing. We talk too much about marriage, and we can broaden this up, friendships even, as a source of pain, because we risked vulnerability in that moment. And it, it, maybe it didn't go well, and it caused all of this pain in our lives. But what we don't talk about is the potential and power that it can have as a source of healing. That hurt and healing are the opposite results of the same thing, to risk vulnerability and intimacy in relationship. And what we're doing in the Proverbs is looking and saying, but Lord, in the beginning and all throughout it, your design for us is intimacy over isolation. Beloved, I would encourage you, wherever you're at in that space, recognize it and then respond. And, and, and maybe the Spirit can start teaching us to trust again. And maybe those vulnerable points become points of healing instead of harm. And maybe we start living into the design that God gave us because the power is there. Number two, not just intimacy over isolation, but collaboration over competition. And that to live collaboratively requires humility. That my pride being the opposite of humility says I can do it on my own. And my humility requires me to be postured and say I'm depending on someone else or something else. And that to live into the design that God has given us for this world requires us to say, there is a task set before me by God that I cannot fulfill on my own. And if you want to look at Adam and Eve in that Genesis story, he says, it's not good that you're alone. There's a loneliness factor. I'm going to make a helper suitable for you. There's a helping factor because God is putting them both on mission. And I love one of the first missions that God gives him, be fruitful and multiply. Can't do that on your own. Come on, like, right? Like, there's a little bit of hu like humor that God is writing into this story of like, I, hey, I got someone for you and it's on mission and you can't do it by yourself even though you might try, but really, here's where it's gonna stop as far as you being able to do it on your own. Be fruitful, multiply. Oh, okay. He's pivoting us into the design that he's given us, collaboration over competition. And it requires that. It requires us to, to work together to do something that we couldn't do on our own. This is even the Proverbs. As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. That to say, you and your work within my life, it requires intimacy and it requires collaboration. And sometimes I think, not only do we, do we stand in this idea of, I'm gonna to try to do it on my own, we start competing with other people so that we look the best because we're trying to get our own. I'm trying to get mine, I, need, I have needs, and I, I'm, I'm not saying that these are invalid, I'm, they're real, but what it ends up doing is causing this inner curvature of our souls versus an outer giving of love that God has created us for. And if we're trying to bend into the answer of a question, how do I find true love? It is not how do I get mine, but how do I serve you? Amen. Not how do I just store and guard and keep and selfishness, but how do I come alongside and serve you? And if we're looking at friendships, if we're looking at marriage, I think this is a lot of what Paul is talking about in Ephesians 5, where he's saying, submit to one another. Anytime that we have a posture of submission that is looking down on another person, we're doing it absolutely wrong. When we're saying, you submit to me, what we do when it's right, even the word submit, come on English folks in this room, Sub, to come under, 
mit or mission, come under the mission of another person. So if we're standing over our spouse, if we're standing over another friend, as I just got to get mine and get out of my way and I'm being in competition versus submitting and saying, how can I champion you in the mission that God has given for you? One is agreeing with God's created order and the other one is, is tarnishing it completely. And this is a question that me and my wife ask each other. Not necessarily every day, though that might be nice, but we, <laughs> how am I championing the calling that God has given you? How am I submitting to you as Christ has called us, submit to one another? So this takes me not just saying, how do I get mine? But then being aware of, and you guys can do this within your marriages, you can do this within in, in housemates and close and intimate friendships. It's just looking at another person and saying, how do I take all of my gifts, all of my abilities, all of my strengths, all of my resources, and champion and come under the calling that God has given you for your life? How do I submit to you? How do I collaborate with you instead of compete with you to get mine? And we should be asking ourselves that question. Because Adam and Eve, even in their calling, they were called with this idea to be on mission. That the Lord was going to bless them. They had to be fruitful and multiply. And then the second, and subdue the entire earth. Man, that sounds like a tall drink of water like to order. Like, what, what do you mean? Like, that's a tall order. Subdue the entire earth. Do you think Adam could have done that by himself? Or does it take some sort of collaborative effort to say, me and you, and we'll multiply and we'll fill, and then we'll call out of each other the gifts, and we'll encourage the gifts, and we'll call out one another into the purpose and the created order which God has given us, and we're going to champion one another more than we're going to look to get our own. And this is what he's saying. This design that I've given you calls me to demand of you intimacy over isolation and collaboration over competition. A lot of this, if we're living vulnerably and collaboratively, it helps us live into the grain of his created order. It leads us to a question, how do I find this? If I found this intimacy, if I found this collaborative partner in work, whether it's marriage or close friendships, how do I get this good thing and not idolize it as ultimate? I want us to, to really sit with this question for today. Because a lot of us within Christianity, we have this idea that we can take the good thing of marriage and make it the ultimate expectation of a fulfilled life and mature faith. We take the good thing of marriage and make it the ultimate expectation of a fulfilled life and mature faith. And we're missing it if we do that. We're taking the goodness of marriage and we're idolizing it and saying this is it. That I have arrived. I have been married and arrived. How many of you know Marriages that are whole, but completely empty and broken on the inside. Or single folks, whether pre-married or post-married, who are single, but completely whole and filled with life and purpose and godliness. So obviously that's not it. We're missing it if that's the case. I think what ends up really coming at it at this point is that living missionally requires the scope of eternity. To avoid idolatry within marriage as the ultimate and our mission within marriage, our mission within intimate friendships, we need to maintain a scope of eternity. 
As Christians, I think often we understand this is that we're saved into eternal life, but don't live on an eternal lifespan, an eternal timeline. As Christians, we get saved into eternal life, but don't actually then change the way we live and the time frame with which we're living on as though it's eternal as well. And we, we were saved eternally, but we live temporarily. And, and this is what I mean. This, this first came to a head with my son, William. So I have two boys. William is the oldest. He is six years old, and he is awesome. If you see him, you will agree. <laughs> he also has cerebral palsy. He, if you see him running around here, he's, he's wearing his AFO's uh, braces, and he's running a little silly, and he's awesome. And maybe he fell, and guess what? It's going to be okay. He'll get back up. Um, William has cerebral palsy because at 39 weeks and two days in utero, he stopped fetal movement. He just stopped, I mean, the kick, they tell you count the kicks, he just stopped moving. We went in to the hospital, and they monitored him, and he had a, he had a steady heartbeat and a steady breath, but he wasn't responding. It wasn't moving for some reason, and I didn't know why. We moved to, after hours of monitoring, uh, emergency C-section, and he came out white and unmoving and uncrying, and they, they rushed him into the NICU, and they didn't know if he was gonna live. They didn't know if he would make it past that night. They didn't know if he'd make it past the next day. Uh, they measured his levels. He'd lost 80% of his red blood cells uh, to something called phenol maternal hemorrhaging. So it had left massive potential for damage. Massive brain damage, severe in all the categories of it. And they just didn't know if he was going to live or not. And, and as the days went on in the hospital, we got to this point where we got, he was in a coma for a little while. They stabilized a lot of his, a lot of his numbers and such. And, and then they said, you know, we're going to move in a few days to just kind of see what this kid can do. Because we don't know. It's bad. It's really bad. And when we pulled the breathing tube out, he might not be able to breathe on his own. And at that point, you might have a choice as parents. You can choose to put the breathing tube back in or you can choose to leave it out and let him go. What? This is my first child and you're giving me the choice of potentially sustaining his life or letting him go. And that weight was just crushing. And I called up some some mentors of mine and just said, I don't, I don't, we're, we're, in, we're lost. We don't know what to do right now. What, what do we do with this? And they came to the hospital the next day and we were processing through. And eventually some of the wisest words that were lent to me in that time knocked me off of the perspective of just this lifetime into the eternal. Because their, their comments were, you have to believe that Either he's going to be raised by you on earth or he's going to live and be raised by his eternal father in heaven. But that either way, he's going to live. And our faith tells us that. But then we don't live that way sometimes. Our faith tells us we've been saved into eternal life, but then we only live in the perspective of these few decades that we get on earth. And what we need to do is buck out of that and go, okay, there's something bigger, greater, longer than just this lifetime. And if William dies, which he didn't, because you'll see him running in the hallways, <laughs> praise the Lord for that miracle of kid. <laughs> he, really, he really is a, a walking, running miracle. He's amazing. But at the same time, I'm in that moment going, do I really believe the faith that I'm ascribing to? 
Do I believe if he, if he dies that he'll still live? And eternity should confront our idolatry of our marriage as I have arrived. Because guess what? This is not all it is. And Jesus says so, and this was our, our gospel reading. He says it in Matthew 22 and in Mark 12. At the resurrection, people won't marry, nor will they be given in marriage. Instead, they will be like angels from God. Eternity is the question on hand in a resurrection in this, in this chapter in Matthew. And the response is, it's something bigger. If you guys think it's just this, you're missing it. If you think it's just this, you're missing it. Now, I want my marriage to be amazing on this lifetime. And I get to preach on true love on our anniversary today. It's 11 years in. Like, this is so great. And we're having so much fun. And we could play well and fight well. And we're doing great, y'all. And, at the same, and I want to go another 40, 50, 50 years. It's going to be great. We're, we're, just, we're so good at this, right? And it's so much fun. And at the same time, if this is it, I'm missing it. And my wife and I were talking about this last night. It, it's confronting the potential. Now, I think Jesus' words are pretty clear, but we were going back and forth. We're like, but I don't not want to be married to you in eternity. Like, this is so good. And it's like, I know. And it confronts us saying either this is the pinnacle or this is good enough and satisfying. Because really what we're going for isn't just my marriage is good. My marriage is only as good as it approximates and reflects the love of Christ for his church. Amen. My marriage and the success of my marriage is only as good if it points to something greater than itself. Which is where in, in, in the church practice, marriages are considered a sacrament. It's the seventh sacrament that was added by the church fathers. And, 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 and what they're saying is, it's Paul's words. This is a great mystery when he's talking about husbands and wives loving each other, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. This is a great mystery. It's really kind of not that, that plain. That my marriage, if it approximates and reflects the love of Christ for his church, we're doing pretty well. And if it doesn't because it's just self-satisfying, then we're missing the point of it. Which is also where it elevates and dignifies singleness because Jesus himself wasn't married. In case you didn't know that. And if you want to look at any of the heroes of the faith, we're talking marriages that didn't really go so well most of the time, right? Like, open challenge, find me the marriage that we should all be exactly like in the scriptures. Yo, not there. What about the New Testament people? Peter, great. Do you guys know that Peter was married? Because it talks about his mother-in-law. Where's his wife the entire time? Like, how good is your marriage? Is it even there? How are you doing? If she died, why didn't we hear about it? Like, I don't know what's going on with your marriage. Or then there's Saul, who becomes Paul, who was unmarried himself, like Jesus. So the entirety of their lives are, I, I would argue, being spent into an eternal perspective. And they're recognizing some of the creative order that Genesis is talking about. Some of it that's there. That you're created for intimacy over isolation. And they're finding it in friendships and in marriages that you're created for collaboration over competition. And you're finding it in friendships and in marriages. You're asking that question, how am I championing your calling today? And you're living missionally and eternal perspective, missionally and eternally. 
And what that does then is it, it causes all of this to come back to this place where we're going right now, which is the table. It causes all of us to come back to this place because what we're seeing is not just I'm satisfied because my marriage is really good or I have really, really great friendships, which might be true, and I love that. But your marriages and your great friendships should be spent living missionally towards kingdom. Because what's eternal is not your marriage nor your friendship. It is Christ and his church. It is the supper of the lamb that is to come and not just this lifetime, me being satisfied, loving, being married to Karen, which is still true if you see her later today. Just let her know I talked her up, okay? Uh, it is Christ and his church. The, the eternity of where we're headed, instead of living in the temporary saying, how well can I do here? It's recognizing our eternal destination is Christ and his church. So then what this becomes is, how well can I do this? So it points to that. How well can I do friendship and intimacy so it points to friendship with Christ? How well can I do marriage so that it points to Christ and the church and the marriage that it is to come? How well can I do this so it glorifies and builds up that? Because if we're really asking the question, how do I find true love? There is no answer apart from Christ. It is Christ and his church. And, And it's put this way by Tim Keller, that true love, real love desires permanence. Real love desires permanent. And the most permanent thing is not my marriage. It is not my friendship. It is Christ, eternity, past, present, and future, and his love for us. How do I find true love? I find Christ and the permanence that he has won on the cross and at the table. And when we come back to the table, that's what we recognize and what we celebrate again. That this, this body broken for us, this blood shed for us is that expression of true love. Love knows no greater than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends, that this is where we find true love. And then if we're lucky, as we practice, as we take risks of vulnerability, we'll find community with one another. And we don't come, again, when we're saying collaboration over competition as though it's just dependent upon us as we've gained it. Oh, I know how to be a good friend. Oh, I know how to be a great spouse. Ah. We come back to the one who showed us how to love in the first place through the self-givenness of him to us. That like Paul's saying in Ephesians 5, that he would purify us and cleanse us and bring us into fellowship and unity with himself. So we don't come boasting. We come to this place confessing. The words are gonna come up on the screen. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you, thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name, amen.